Church Life Today is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. The desire for truth, the passion for discovery, the education of reason, the fundamental claim about what it means to be a human being, being formed as a person of faith through the rigors of the scientific method. All these things and more were discussed in the first part of my two-part conversation with Sophia Carozza, a Marshall Scholar at the University of Cambridge studying in the field of neuroscience. Sophia is back for the second part of our conversation to talk about the role of morality in the training of scientists, the breaking from disordered attachments, the education of desire, and prayer and companionship. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life in collaboration with the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here. Sophia Carozza, welcome back. Glad to be here. Thank you. So this is the second part of our conversation. And at the end of the first conversation that we had, you started to talk a little bit about the distinctive ability to sort of grasp or move towards or be open to the whole of reality one step at a time which is the opposite of an ideological view, a sort of fundamentalism to take just one thing and make it the whole thing rather than seeing it within its proper context. This is something I really grasped from what you had written in your essay, The Garden of Forking Methods. And you speak of something like this that really, again, grabbed my attention in a couple places. In one place you say, quote, the human person must set aside images and preconceptions in order to receive him. And in that case, you're talking about the Lord. It has to do with our disposition as disciples to receive Mm -hmm. the Lord as he is. Then in another spot, you're talking about the fundamental role of morality for the vocation of the scientist. And there you quote Giussani, who says that morality is the ability to, quote, love the truth of an object more than one's attachment to the opinions one has already formed about it. This brings up, I think, the issue of disordered attachments. So the failure in in many cases for most of us or all of us some of the time to place things in their proper perspective. Can you speak to this a little bit in terms of, on the one hand, the vocation of the scientist to let go of these disordered attachments, especially to one's own opinion, but then maybe the correlation or the connection to the training in the life of faith? Absolutely. So Morality is an essential dimension of the vocation of the scientist, which sounds like an absurd thing to say. Mm -hmm. But if we recall the definition that you just cited, morality is the ability to love the truth more than your existing attachments. Then every scientist, of course, to be a good scientist must be moral. Because if a scientist approaches an experiment with such an attachment to her hypothesis or the theory that's grounding her work, she's going to ignore the data in front of her and only find observations that confirm her biases. And that's not science. That's <laughs> ideology. Yeah. And I think that it's a clear example of a dynamic that's also at play in the life of faith. Of course, we can turn to scripture and see that ideology blinded certain people that Christ encountered to the fact that he was the Messiah because they were attached to their image of a political Messiah, someone who would free them from the rule of the Romans. And so they were unable to love the truth They were unable to love Christ more than their attachment to their idea of who he was going to be. So here, I think we see that this is why morality is an essential dimension of the relationship between the human person 
and the mystery, that we're constantly blinded to the encounter with Christ, to discipleship, to God, by our attachments to how we think he's going to reach us, how we think he's acting, who we think we are, our plans and our desires and our preconceptions about where we're going to find him in our day or how we're going to serve him in our lives. So morality is this act of purification from idolatry, this act of letting go of our attachments to what we already have. As human beings, every neuroscientist knows we're remarkably risk averse, right? (laughs) So this is very hard for us. But this is the work of conversion. This is what enables us to recognize Christ, not for who we think he's going to be, but who he is. And there's no relationship with a God who exists in your head. You know, we can agree (laughs) with the atheists on that one, right? You have to be in love with a presence. And so I think this is another place I've seen in my life as a scientist that I'm constantly trained in my research to love the truth of an object more than my attachment to my opinions. Because if I wasn't willing to let go of my hypotheses when they were wrong, willing to let go of my theories when I found a better one, and passionately desirous to discover the truth, I wouldn't find anything, right? It would be a futile exercise. And so it's certainly not always easy, Mm -hmm. but it is something that prepares me for that same effort, that same work of purification in the life of faith, which has to happen every day. Because again, we don't wake up loving the truth more than our existing (laughs) attachments. As you speak about that, and especially as you were talking about the expectation and the welcoming of the Messiah— I'm reminded of, you know, these two disciples on the way to Emmaus, to whom Jesus draws near, and he asks them what they're talking about, and then, you know, they say certain things, and he's like, oh, do tell me, and so they tell him, which is a great piece of scriptural irony, but the the really killer line that they offer, which really tells you everything, is they say, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel, so to your point, right, like, what did they love? They loved their idea of the Messiah, They are not open to the Messiah who's standing right in front of them. Now, there's no precedent for this, right? So we can, in some ways, excuse it. But we also ought to see ourselves right there, I think, to your point, right? What do we love more than him? And sometimes we even call it him. But they're shocked eventually. They have to be shocked. They have to be wounded. Their memories and their imaginations have to be reformed. And in the end, they're filled with this inexpressible joy that they have to go and do everything just to express. It's not unlike Mary Magdalene, who encounters Jesus outside the tomb. He says, who are you looking for? What are you looking for? What is she looking for? A dead body. She's there to look for her deceased friend, for a corpse, out of love and affection. But she has to be shocked to open herself to him. So I think about what you're saying here in this Training and being wrong. There's a book with a really lovely title called The Joy of Being Wrong. It's a good book too, but it's got a lovely title, The Joy of Being Wrong. And I think about what you're saying in terms of being a scientist and doing experiments and this training in learning how to be okay with being wrong. And in fact, sometimes rejoicing in it. I was wrong. I had the wrong idea. And then being open to the truth, to understanding and grasping more of the truth. So here's the question. As the scientist then, as your progression in the scientific field, how has this training in being wrong actually been a gift to you as a person of faith, learning how to be wrong? I think the clearest way to answer your question is by recourse to an example. Great. And I would say that 
One recent place that I was educated to morality in my research is in my master's project. I did not find what I expected to find in my data. Hmm. I didn't find the effect that I had hypothesized that I had this Uh gorgeous (laughs) neurobiological mechanism for, right? And my initial response to that was just devastation and grasping at straws, like how can I prop this up somehow that it can still be the thesis that I thought it was going to be, rather than openness to the truth, loving the truth of what my data did or didn't show me more than my attachment to what I thought my thesis was going to contain, right? Coincidentally, or perhaps not coincidentally, Uh that was exactly when the pandemic hit here in Cambridge. And all of a sudden I was facing not my vibrant life of even song in the college chapel, worshiping <laughs> with my Cambridge chaplaincy, attending formal hall dinners and, you know, punting down the camp. This makes my life sound idyllic. It's not quite that idyllic. <laughs> but all of a sudden, I was barred from attending mass. I was confined to a home with five people, albeit lovely people, but the same five people 24-7, <laughs> and prevented from traveling outside of a radius of my house, right? And I had the same dynamic. My initial question, full of devastation, was, Lord, how could you ask this of me? You, You know, how am I supposed to serve you and love you and know you always more deeply in this restricted range when I can't even receive the Eucharist? I can't do the the service that I ordinarily do. All of these excuses, right? Loving my attachment to how I'm used to encountering him in my everyday life instead of how he was choosing to reach me namely through apparently limited circumstances, right? But it was precisely that experience with the master's project. And of course, my companionship here in Cambridge in communion liberation, who had helped me understand what happened with the master's project, that education enabled me to say, hold up, maybe that's not what's happening here. Maybe instead, this is an initiative of the mystery in my life that actually is going to be the means of discovering him for who he is, not for who I think he is or how I think I can serve him or what I think he has in store for me. And with that change in perspective, of course, something I had to renew every morning and ask like, Lord, make me open to how you're present in this house, how you're present in this work. Make me open to the fact that I cannot visit you in the tabernacle. Right. But with that begging, my experience of the lockdown in Cambridge was totally transformed Mm -hmm. from something suffocating and oppressive that I was counting down the days to when they said we could go to mass again and everything else from something suffocating to something life giving. And it's still shocking to me that I can say that because I am not someone who likes to have her activities restricted. It was very (laughs) hard for me. But The outpouring of grace I experienced in the new forms of prayer that I engaged in, in the humbling moments of reckoning with my weakness, in the mercy of my housemates and my collaborators in in my scientific work, those were all new ways of the mystery breaking into my life that shattered my ideas of how he acts and where he was that have, again, you know, going forward into lockdown two and lockdown three, but also myriad other circumstances in my life have in a small way and in a gradual way helped me 
love him more and more Mm. and follow him more and more instead of my ideas about him and what he has in store for me. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Sophia Carozza, Marshall Scholar at the University of Cambridge, where she researches the neurobiological pathways through which early adversity affects the developing brain. She is a member of the Society of Catholic Scientists. She blogs at Synapses of the Soul. She co-hosts the Pilgrim Soul podcast. As we're talking here a little bit about these sort of disordered attachments, the kind of breaking away from expectations and this profound, radical openness to the welcoming of Christ, to the welcoming of truth, to moving beyond the smallish uh, ideas that we've constructed of ourselves. You're attributing much of this sort of education to Father Giussani and his formation of people and both in person and now through his writing and witness. I'm reminded of, you know, somebody like St. Ignatius of Loyola who puts before anyone who enters into his spiritual exercises, the first foundation and principle, which is that the human being is created to praise, love, and serve the Lord. There's the thing. And then what gets in the way? The things we get attached to that we prefer to that fundamental mission and the spiritual disposition of indifference is the key there to be able to continually welcome this mission. How does Father Giussani make similar moves to that, to having, it wouldn't be in the same kind of language of indifference, but the right ordering of attachments, the letting go of certain things so as to welcome the evermore who is our Lord? How has that been part of the formation for you and for others in communion and liberation? I think the comparison to St. Ignatius is appropriate. And I would say that the most powerful way that I see this dynamic unfolding in the life of the movement and in my own life is in the education of desire. Mm. So Giussani focuses a lot in his account of faith and a life of Christianity on the fact that the desires of the human heart all point to God whether it's my desire for companionship, for truth, for meaning, for an answer to my suffering, all of these things are signs that I'm made for the infinite and that only the infinite can adequately answer them. And of course, our temptation, because these desires can be painful if they're unanswered or don't seem to be answered, our temptation is to stifle them and ignore them or to fill them with objects that are not suited to the desire itself, right? And of course, I'm sure we can all think of many examples in our own lives of engaging in these reductions of the religious sense in not taking seriously the fact that my heart is made for the infinite. And what is the answer then, as you said, what is what is it that enables us to undergo the work of conversion, of loving Christ more than our attachments? And here I would say the path is twofold. And one is prayer and the other is companionship. Hmm. So prayer, Jusani defines as begging. Prayer is begging. Begging for the mystery to come into your life and begging for Christ to come to the entire world. And I think this is a really freeing posture because it immediately places you in a position of receptivity and poverty of spirit. Not begging in the sense of, I don't know where to turn, I have nothing to offer, but begging in a recognition that my heart is made for Christ who in turn 
begs for me to come to him. So it's this awareness of an essential relationship. And all of prayer is an education to this, whether it's the mass begging for his physical presence, confession begging for his mercy, mental prayer begging for greater intimacy within the silence of my heart. But then also companionship, of course, because this is not a privatized affair. (laughs) We need one another to correct us, to point out the ways that Christ is working in our life, but also to guide us back to the right path when we are stuck in ideology or when we simply have questions about how it is that we can keep walking on this path to serve as examples and inspiration for us, those saints and witnesses who are ahead of us. So, yeah, so I would say the essential dynamic is recognizing that my heart is made for God alone and that this necessarily must take place in my daily life because I can't encounter God anyplace else and responding by begging for his presence and following the companionship of believers through which he reveals himself to be present. Mm. That posture of begging is really, that's really profound and it really kind of gives us an image. I'm thinking here of the the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Like this is yeah. the this is the posture of the tax collector, right? The one who begs, yes. who actually has few words, but his his posture is described actually a, a bit extensively. And then on the other side, you have the Pharisee who has lots of words. Like he fills all the space. He's praying with himself. It says, and his posture is not described very much. He's just very pleased with himself. And also mm-hmm. turns out the Pharisee therefore can't even recognize in compassion the tax collector. So. I wonder about this kind of culture that Luigi Giussani has created, generated. Saints, he's not a canonized saint, but he is a saintly person and perhaps someday will be canonized. Servant of God. We're on our way, right? (laughs) But they are, they're readers of culture, the saints, but they're also generators of culture. They create cultures where it is easier to receive the Lord, where it becomes more possible. It's not forced, but it becomes more possible. This culture of communion and liberation, the efficacious witness that he himself has given in his teaching and his writing, you've benefited clearly from this very personally and deeply. I wonder about these great many young Catholics who are studying the sciences, not in a setting of Catholic education, who aren't the products of Catholic education, who haven't had the the benefit and the gift of a community like communion and liberation. And for many of them, it would seem it's a very individualistic or an individualized struggle to have to figure Mm. out the compatibility, even the compatibility of their faith and their vocation to become scientists, let alone this broader conception that you're giving us, that they're actually mutually enriching and that the scientist is being trained, perhaps, for these dispositions of faith. What would you like to see or what would you hope for? For these many, 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 the vast majority of young Catholics who are studying the sciences who don't have that kind of structure and support in place, what kind of formation ought we be offering to all these young people? That's a tough question and one that's on my heart frequently as I get pretty regular messages through my blog from such students Mm -hmm. who are isolated and struggling when their science teachers in high school or their professors in college present them with a reductionist view of the human person or whatever it is that contradicts the faith. And they say, where can I turn? I don't have the resources to square this with my faith in God. So this is a very important question, particularly because this false narrative is something that drives people away from Christ. Mm -hmm. It mires them in ideology. I think really the renewal has to come through education, both the education in the domestic church, but also the education in 
high schools and middle schools, both Catholic and not, right? We need a cultural transformation, as you mentioned, a transformation of the heart by which we begin to look at students, not so much as receptacles that we have to pump full of information <laughs> and and get give them the qualifications to be productive members of a capitalist society, not so much in that way, but as irreducible hearts made for God. And if you're in a secular school, just to recognize the intrinsic dignity and freedom of the student in front of you. And with that gaze on the student, what do we have instead of indoctrination and rote memorization, we have a proposal that the truth is proposed to these students, the truth of tradition, the truth of science, all of this truth is set before the student and the student is invited to take it and and verify it in their own life to see how it's possible that accepting this truth enriches their life and enriches their humanity. With this gaze, then I think a student will be prepared to encounter the most hardcore reductionist of a scientist or philosopher to go somewhere where others do not receive this education, not with fear, but with a desire to say, okay, I know that if this truth that's proposed to me, namely the human person doesn't have freedom, we're all just brains in a vat, whatever it is, (laughs) that if this truth is true, that I'll be able to verify it for myself in my life. And of course, as soon as they put that as their working hypothesis, they're going to discover that it's ludicrous, right? Mm. No one can look at their life and say, ah, yes, I am just an ensemble of neurons. I think there's a degree of self-deception involved in trying to maintain that as an intellectual conviction. So I think that really what it what it starts with is this gaze in the home and in the school on young people, this trust in their use of their freedom to take what we're proposing to them as the truth and discover it to be true. And ultimately, this comes from faith in God, right? Because if we trust that he is who he says he is and his truth is, it is, then we have nothing to fear in approaching our students this way. Because what we want more than anything is for them in their hearts to encounter truth itself. Mm. Strikes me, I mean, we're really talking here about not just being a good person of faith. You're talking about being a good scientist. Like there are reductions in the scientific pursuits that actually are, in this case, dehumanizing. It makes you less than human because it it turns you into a sort of caricature of a human being, a, mm. a diminishment. And this sometimes, oftentimes gets perpetuated in our educational systems, that this becomes an ideology, a, a sort of secret ideology, one that carries a tremendous amount of force. And we end up educating not young people as full and blossoming human beings, but as this reduced image of what the human being is. Yes. I think about this too, Sophia, as a something that speaks to our public discourse and the possibility for dialogue. This understanding that you're bringing to our attention from Jusani and elsewhere about loving the truth more than loving your own opinion. I think we could probably all readily agree that in much of public discussion and debate, social media and elsewhere, it is an echo chamber of strongly and not often very well understood opinions Mm -hmm. and not a communal engagement, a communal pursuit of the truth. You're talking about the real training as a scientist preparing you for life as a Christian. I wonder if you might think with us about this training for becoming a really good scientist as also being a training for being a good citizen, somebody who can 
engage with others, actually have neighbors and not just adversaries? Mm -hmm. I think that there are two primary ways that I see this unfolding. One is the scientist training to attend to the individual subject in front of her, whether that subject is a population of neurons or a child who's developing. Stay on topic, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, stay on topic. We're not talking about that. Yeah. So you have to look at exactly what's in front of you. Yeah. You can't scientifically study an abstraction in mind. And in the realm of political discourse, you have to treat your fellow citizens as human beings with all of the complexities and nuance and irreducible dignity that they have rather than a carrier of an opinion that you disagree with. Mm. And so sort of this attention, this ability to observe what's actually in front of you and be open to what's in front of you, that I think is one particular way that we see this dynamic unfolding. And the other I would say is acknowledging the role of quote unquote non-rational aspects of the human person in the process of knowing. So I think that rightfully, there's an emphasis in political discourse on trusting the science or trusting the data and making decisions just on a procedural level. But what that obscures is the fact that not even in science are decisions made that way, right? We're animated by passion for an idea that we think is beautiful. We're animated by awe. We're animated by a potential order and a beauty that right now we just intuit. And so we say we've reached certainty, but we're never really quite there. And the way that we distinguish between what we think is true and what's not are all this range of methods of knowing, not just a statistical computation. And I think that can help us when we're looking at the divided nature of our political landscape, because we can see that what we need is not just a solution that will minimize all of the discomfort and the friction between different groups of people, or that will sidestep all of this conflict by just solving things on a procedural level. If we can just get enough vaccines, you know, mm -hmm. people won't be divided about COVID anymore. Hmm. No, what we need is an affection. We need an affection for our fellow citizens and an affection for our country. Now, not like a misguided sort of nationalism. Yeah but really a desire for the common good and a creativity in the ways that we that we understand that, not just as the minimization of a certain evil, but really an affection for the common good in all levels of society and in our own lives. And so I think that with those two things, the attention to the individual and the affection for the common good, that really is where I see that, you know, the training that we get in science is this very same training that we need to be whole and fruitful citizens. Mm. I've been talking today with Sophia Carozza, Marshall Scholar at the University of Cambridge. She's written a number of times at our online journal, Church Life Journal. The essay we were discussing mostly is The Garden of Forking Methods. Also, you can check out Sophia's writing on her blog, Synapses of the Soul, and give a listen to her podcast, The Pilgrim Soul. Thank you, Sophia, doubly, in fact, for two wonderful conversations for the generosity of your time and wisdom with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. Church Life Today is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners.
This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. 